Mind 10 Ministries podcast, No Trash, Just Truth, with hosts Chris Paxson and Rose Spiller. At Proverbs 910 Ministries, we are dedicated to taking out the trash of false teaching and replacing it with biblical truth. Hi everyone, welcome back to No Trash, Just Truth as we embark on a new series titled Sin-Filled Nation. Now, we know some of you might be thinking, no kidding America is sin-filled. But this series is about the book of Judges and the Israelites in the Promised Land, not the United States or any other country. And although what goes for Israel in the Old Testament doesn't directly apply to modern day nations because God's people now are the church, there's a lot that Christians can learn. Absolutely. We are all sinful, broken people who need to be reminded about the effects of sin, disobedience, and apostasy in all ages. There is nothing new under the sun, as Solomon reminds us in the book of Ecclesiastes. That's right. So let's get started because there's a lot to cover in this episode. Okay. The book of Judges is historical narrative that happens between the time of Joshua leading the Israelites into the promised land for the second time and Israel crowning its first king, King Saul. It spans about 350 years from 1400 BC to about 1050 BC. And if you're not sure about your way around the Bible, it comes after Moses led the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt and they went into the promised land for the first time, but were punished and wandered the desert for 40 years. Moses dies right before they enter the promised land for the second time and God appoints Joshua as the new leader, the one who would lead the Israelites into the promised land, which is the Canaanite territory, to conquer it. We should read a passage where God explains what conquering the promised land is going to be like for the Israelites. Exodus 23 verses 20 to 24 and 27 to 33 tell this pretty good. It says, Behold, I am sending an angel before you to protect you along the way and to bring you to the place I have prepared. Pay attention to him and listen to his voice. Do not defy him, for he will not forgive rebellion since my name is in him. But if you will listen carefully to his voice and do everything I say, I will be an enemy to your enemies and a foe to your foes. For my angel will go before you and bring you into the land of the Amorites, Hittites, Perizzites, Canaanites, Hivites, and Jebusites, and I will annihilate them. You must not bow down to their gods or serve them or follow their practices. Instead, you are to demolish them and smash their sacred stones to pieces. I will send my terror ahead of you and throw into confusion every nation you encounter. I will make all of your enemies turn and run. I will send the hornet before you and drive out the Hivites and the Canaanites and the Hittites out of your way. I will not drive them out before you in a single year, otherwise the land would become desolate and wild animals would multiply against you. Little by little I will drive them out ahead of you, until you become fruitful and possess the land, and I will establish your borders from the Red Sea to the Sea of the Philistines and from the desert to the Euphrates, for I will deliver the inhabitants into your hand and you will drive them out before you. You shall make no covenant with them or with their gods. They must not remain in your land lest they cause you to sin against me. For if you serve their gods, it will surely be a snare to you. Chris, let's talk about them conquering the promised land for a minute. This was God's righteous judgment on the Canaanites for their gross sin and their idolatry. Archaeology gives some hints about what the Canaanites were like and it's not pretty. On one high place, archaeologists found several stone pillars 
and a whole lot of jars containing the remains of newborn babies. When a new house was built, a child would be sacrificed and its body built into the wall to bring good luck to the rest of the family. Firstborn children were often sacrificed to Moloch, who's the Canaanite god, and it was a giant hollow bronze image in which a fire was built. Parents placed their children in the red-hot hands of this statue, and the babies would roll down into the fire. It just makes your blood run cold. That is sick. The sacrifice wasn't valid if a parent displayed any kind of grief. Mothers were supposed to dance and sing. The Israelites later copied some of these practices. In a valley near Jerusalem called Gehenna, hundreds of jars containing infant bones have been found. This is sick. This seems horrible. But Rose, is our culture much better? In the United States, there are more than 3,600 abortions every day, day after day after day. The number of legal abortions every year exceeds the number of U.S. soldiers killed in every war since the nation began. The Canaanites also practiced a ton of sexual sin. They believed that cultic prostitution was important to encourage their gods, Baal and Ashtoreth, to mate so that the land would be fertile and rain would come. Many young people forced into prostitution were abused to the point of death. Even the surrounding pagan nations were appalled by the Canaanite practices. But God did not hurry to judge the Canaanites. In Genesis 15, 16, God tells Abraham, In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. God gave the Canaanites 400 years while Israel was in Egypt to repent. After Israel passed through the Red Sea, He waited 40 more years while Israel wandered in the wilderness, but they didn't repent. And the people of Canaan knew Israel was coming and that God had given the land to them. We see this according to Rahab, a Canaanite, in Joshua 2.9. You know, readers today might look at the books of Joshua and Judges and think it seems like God is okaying unjust murder, ethnic cleansing, and stealing due to the fact that he tells the Israelites to go in and conquer distant cities and plunder them and sometimes kill everyone, including men, women, and children. And in the case of the promised land, they're told to wipe the Canaanites out who live there. God commanded this at a very specific time in history for his specific purposes and to bring his judgment on Canaan. That judgment, just like the judgment of Sodom and Gomorrah, are pictures of God's judgment that's coming when Jesus returns. So we cannot and should not assume that it's okay for anyone to proceed to take over and conquer other people's land in this way, just because it's in the Bible. The Bible is not a book that we're meant to imitate everything in. Like you said, this is God's righteous judgment on the wicked. And if you'll notice what he tells the Israelites to do when you read the accounts, you'll see that it's God that does the fighting. This is called holy war, and it's not to be confused with Islamic holy war, which is something totally bad and totally different. Right. Biblical holy war had very specific rules. It was not waged on the basis of race. And we know this because God takes people of all races and makes them part of his people, like Rahab, for this example, of this time. And like we already said, this was God's judgment on the Canaanites, And this is evidence because God's the one who does the fighting. 
He's the one that fights the enemies for Israel, and Israel just goes in and is basically the mop-up crew. You're right. Now, getting back to the timeline of Judges, like we said, Joshua was appointed as the new leader after Moses. He's led them into the country, made sure that the land was divided amongst the 12 tribes the way God wanted it to be. The people go to their lands, and Judges 2-7 tells us then, the people served the Lord all the days of Joshua and all the days of the elders who outlived Joshua, who had seen all the great work that the Lord had done for Israel. But now Joshua's dead, and all of that generation is dead too. The text goes on to tell us, And there arose another generation after them who did not know the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. So, Chris, the beginning of the book is going to tell us about the roots of Israel's apostasy. Their big number one problem, the people hadn't taught their children about God. And is that not relevant today? Yeah. How many Christians do we know who fall for this false idea that you shouldn't push your Christianity on your kids? Instead, let them decide when they're older and make their own decision and learn if they want to. Ugh. As you and I know, teaching or not teaching is no guarantee that our children are part of God's elect. But we're supposed to do it. The Israelites were commanded to teach God's precepts like in Deuteronomy 11:19 and many other places. And the New Testament says the same thing in Ephesians 6, 4. Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. So these Israelites that we're talking about at this point, for the most part, don't know about God and they need a new leader. Chapter 1, verse 1 says, After the death of Joshua, the people inquired of the Lord, Who shall go up first for us against the Canaanites to fight against them? The Israelites are looking for someone to lead them here. Okay, well, the book is called Judges because the word judge means a God-appointed spiritual and military leader. They were actually deliverers or a type of savior from Israel's oppressors at different times, as we're going to see. They weren't what we refer to as judges today. And the only exception to that is Deborah, who we're told was acting in a judiciary capacity before she started leading one of the military campaigns. That's right. And we should say before we go much further that we're not going to read the whole book of Judges in these episodes. Um, you can do that on your own. But let's start with some at the beginning just to kind of give you a feel for what's going on here. I'll read chapter 1, verses 2 to 7. The Lord said, Judah shall go up. Behold, I have given the land into his hand. And Judah said to Simeon his brother, Come up with me into the territory allotted to me that we may fight against the Canaanites. And I likewise will go with you into the territory allotted to you. So Simeon went with him. Then Judah went up and the Lord gave the Canaanites and the Perizzites into their hand. And they defeated 10,000 of them at Bezek. They found Adonai Bezek at Bezek and fought against him and defeated the Canaanites and the Perizzites. Adonai Bezek fled, but they pursued him and caught him and cut off his thumbs and his big toes. And Adonai Bezek said, Seventy kings with their thumbs and their big toes cut off used to pick up scraps under my table. As I have done, so God has repaid me. And they brought him to Jerusalem and he died there. How's that, Rose? I guess no big toe, you can't run, no thumb, you can't fight. Absolutely. Like you said, Chris, Joshua led them into the promised land. The allotments had been given to each of the 12 tribes of Israel. And the fighting went on like you just read. But there's a problem. They haven't totally conquered all the land yet. 
They've disobeyed God because they haven't totally driven out or annihilated the Canaanites from the land. Right. They were supposed to expel the pagans or exterminate certain ones altogether. This is a tough passage, but this is what the Israelites were told. In Deuteronomy 20, 16 to 18, it says, But in the cities of these peoples that the Lord your God is giving you for an inheritance, you shall save alive nothing that breathes, but you shall devote them to complete destruction. The Hittites and the Amorites, the Canaanites and the Perizzites, the Hivites and the Jebusites, as the Lord your God has commanded, that they may not teach you to do according to all their abominable practices that they have done for their gods. And so you sin against the Lord your God. You know, the overall disobedience of the Israelites and the sin and the sordid details that we're going to see in this book, and some of them are definitely sordid, is contrasted here with, you know, stories of godly people. Like the description here in chapter 1 of Caleb and his family. Israelites who obey the Lord and are blessed. And even the Kenites, they're outsiders who were part of Moses' father-in-law's family. Even the outsiders had more faith in God than his people did sometimes. Yeah. Verse 19 of chapter 1 says, The Lord was with Judah, and he took possession of the hill country, but he could not drive out the inhabitants of the plain because they had chariots of iron. Chris, after what God's already done, the tribe of Judah didn't have enough faith that God could win against people who had chariots? Like, chariots are too much for God? It's crazy. Eight more times in chapter 1, it says different parts of God's people did not drive out the inhabitants that were there before them. The tribe of Dan let the pagan Amorites press them all the way up into the hill country instead of them holding their ground in the fertile plains. Sometimes the Israelites pressed the Canaanites they conquered into servitude, but that's not what God commanded them to do. He wanted them out of the territory. He did. Chapter 2, 1 to 3 says, Now the angel of the Lord went up from Gilgal to Bochum, and he said, I have brought you up from Egypt and brought you into the land that I swore to give to your fathers. I said, I will never break my covenant with you, and you shall make no covenant with the inhabitants of this land. You shall break down their altars, but you have not obeyed my voice. What is this you have done? So now I say, I will not drive them out before you. But they shall become thorns in your sides, and their gods shall be a snare to you. God knew that the pagan people of that land would lead the Israelites into false worship, idolatry, and syncretism, which is the practice of adding other kinds of worship to the worship of God. And that's what happened, as we're going to see as we go through the book. And that's what happens today. Yeah, it, sadly it does. And like we said... This holy war for taking possession of the promised land was something that God was doing, and we're not to do that today. But we do live amongst pagans, and they do influence us. So, Rose, let me ask you a question. Do you think Christians living among non-Christians poses a problem, a possibility, or both? Okay, let's read a little more, and then we'll talk about it. I'm going to read from Judges 2, 11 to 15. And the people of Israel did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and served the Baals. And they abandoned the Lord, the God of their fathers, who had bought them out of the land of Egypt. They went after other gods from among the gods of the people who were around them and bowed down to them. And they provoked the Lord to anger. They abandoned the Lord and served the Baals and the Asherah. So is living amongst non-Christians a problem? I would say definitely here, you can see. Is it a possibility? 
Yeah, I think it probably is. So I'd have to say yes to both. Yeah, it's a yes to both. I agree with that. So Israel knew God promised their patriarch Abraham that all the nations would be blessed through him. That was always God's plan. The Gentiles would be part of his people, and we see glimpses of various Gentiles within the fold of Israelites like we said already. Isaiah speaks of Israel being a light to the Gentile nations. Isaiah 60 verse 3 says, Nations will come to your light and kings to the brightness of your dawn. They were to be a light drawing nations to themselves. And this ultimately talks about Jesus, but we do get a glimpse of nations being drawn to Israel. Queen Sheba heard about the blessings of God and she came to see King Solomon. But ultimately, Rose, the Israelites didn't fulfill their calling to be a blessing to the nations. Instead, they became Canaanized themselves. They became like the pagan nations. That's exactly what God said would happen if they left those people in there. Matthew 5.16 says, In the same way, let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to God your Father who is in heaven. And 1 Peter 2.12 says, Conduct yourselves with such honor among the Gentiles that though they slander you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day he visits us. So it's obvious that Christians are to live godly lives among the pagans, just like Israel was supposed to. And we're supposed to be salt and light in the world. But as we've said before, salt is not sugar. Christians are not supposed to be accommodating to the world in any way that compromises the Bible. We've said this before, Rose. Just by living in the world in a holy manner, which Jesus calls us to do, Christians will be irritating to unbelievers. 2 Corinthians 2, 14-17 says, But thanks be to God, who in Christ always leads us in triumphal procession, and through us spreads the fragrance of the knowledge of him everywhere. For we are the aroma of Christ to God amongst those who are being saved and among those who are perishing. To one, a fragrance from death to death. To the other, a fragrance from life to life. Or the fragrance of death, Rose. And we've said this before. The gospel message is offensive. It's a stumbling block and folly to those who aren't being saved. The world will hate us just because we're Christians. John 15, 18 to 21 says, If the world hates you, keep in mind it hated me first. This is Jesus talking. If you belong to the world, it would love you as its own. As it is, you do not belong to the world, but I have chosen you out of the world. That is why the world hates you. We don't even have to do anything to make the world hate us. And you know what, Chris? If the world loves us, maybe we better check what we're teaching. You might want to examine yourself, as Paul says. So, Rose, getting back to compromising the Bible, let's talk about this call for unity that we Christians in the United States have been called to, not only by a people who have a totally different worldview than us, but also from some Christian pastors and some leaders. There's a call to move forward and heal the nation. But shouldn't we stop and ask some questions first? Rose, do you want to talk about why Christians shouldn't hear the word unity and just jump on the bandwagon? I do. And it's not just unity with non-Christians that we should be wary of. You know, Beth Moore claims God lifted her up to show her that Jesus wants every denomination united in his church, even the heretical and apostate denominations. That's even stupid to think about. That is horrible. 
It's just stupid to think that would ever be the case and God would ever want that. And I want to mention here and give a shout out to the Just Thinking podcast with Daryl Harrison and Virgil Walker and their episode called An Exposition of Biblical Unity. Yep, it's an excellent podcast and that episode is brilliant. It really was. They define biblical unity from Ephesians where the words used twice in regard to purity of the doctrine of the church. They say in their podcast, unity that is pursued outside of the doctrinal parameters of the spirit and of the faith, any unity that is outside of those parameters from a doctrinal standpoint is to be avoided at all costs by those who profess to be followers of Jesus Christ. There's so much we could say about this. Christians shouldn't hear the word unity and think, oh my, it's a biblical concept, so I'm in. That's similar to Christians jumping on the Black Lives Matter bandwagon without giving it any thought, which we talked about in one of our Revelation episodes. So Rose, let me ask you another question. Aren't we supposed to strive for peace with everyone like Paul says? Okay, I'm going to steal a quote from the Just Thinking guys who stole a quote from Charles Spurgeon in that same episode. And here's the Spurgeon quote. We are to be first pure, then peaceable. Our peaceableness is never to be a compact with sin or an alliance with that which is evil. We must set our faces like flints against everything which is contrary to God and his holiness. That being in our souls a settled manner, we can go on to peaceableness towards men. End quote. Amen to that. I'm going to throw in a few scriptures for good measure here. Isaiah 5.20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who substitute darkness for light and light for darkness, who substitute bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. And 2 Corinthians 6.14, which says, Do not be bound together with unbelievers, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, and what fellowship has light with darkness? And one more, Ephesians 5.11, Have no fellowship with the fruitless deeds of darkness, but rather expose them. So Rose, we're not saying don't ever be around an unbeliever. That's not what we're supposed to do. We're not supposed to treat anybody badly. So don't do that either. But the Israelites problem was they didn't stand against temptation and then they became like the ungodly. And we can be tempted to throw our hats in the ring with the ungodly, both in personal conduct and for the sake of unity, quote unquote, corporately as Christians. We've got to be on guard. Okay, let's finish today and find out what happened to the Israelites who were being canonized by temptation of the ungodly who were around them. I'll start reading in Judges 2, 14 to the end. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he gave them over to plunderers who plundered them. And he sold them into the hand of their surrounding enemies so that they could no longer withstand their enemies. Whenever they marched out, the hand of the Lord was against them for harm. And as the Lord had warned, and as the Lord had sworn to them, and they were in terrible distress, then the Lord raised up judges who saved them out of the hands of those who plundered them. Yet they did not listen to their judges, for they whored after other gods and bowed down to them. They soon turned aside from the way in which their fathers had walked, who had obeyed the commandments of the Lord, and they did not do so. Whenever the Lord raised up judges for them, the Lord was with the judge, and he saved them from the hand of their enemies all the days of the judge. 
For the Lord was moved to pity by their groaning because of those who afflicted and oppressed them. But whenever the judge died, they turned back and were more corrupt than their fathers, going after other gods and serving them and bowing down to them. They did not drop any of their practices or their stubborn ways. So the anger of the Lord was kindled against Israel, and he said, Because this people have transgressed my covenant that I commanded their fathers and have not obeyed my voice, I will no longer drive out before them any of the nations that Joshua left when he died, in order to test Israel by them, whether they take care to walk in the way of the Lord as their fathers did or not. So the Lord left those nations not driving them out quickly, and he did not give them into the hands of Joshua. Chris, I just want to remind people that God's people aren't a geographical nation. The geographical nation of Israel wasn't God's people, and neither is our geographical nation now. God's people is the church. It's the church who needs to think about how God feels about becoming like unbelievers, about making alliances with unbelievers, and about capitulating the unbelievers. We're going to be tested. We are. The first six verses in Judges 3 tells us that same thing. The Lord left those remnants of those nations there. It says, to test Israel by them. That is, all in Israel who had not experienced all the wars in Canaan. It was only in order that the generations of the people of Israel might know war, to teach war to those who had not known it before. These are the nations the five lords of the Philistines and all the Canaanites and the Sidonians and the Hivites who lived on Mount Lebanon from Mount Baal Harmon as far as Lebo Hamath. They were for the testing of Israel to know whether Israel would obey the commands of the Lord which he commanded their fathers by the hand of Moses. So the people of Israel lived among the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Amorites, the Perizzites and the Hivites and the Jebusites. And their daughters took them for their wives, and their own daughters they gave to their sons, and they served their gods. The Israelites didn't obey God. They left Canaanites alive. But God also had plans for those Canaanites to be left in the land. This is a great example of God working through people's sin to accomplish his purpose. Right. And his purpose, the new generation needed to be tested. And Christians today do too. Because as Romans 5, 3 to 5 says... We rejoice in our sufferings, knowing that suffering produces endurance, endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Yep, and there's one more reason that goes hand in hand with that first one. That new generation had not experienced war, and they needed to learn how to fight. Joshua and that first generation had learned, sometimes the hard way, that they couldn't overcome these evil people by their own power or by their own strength. They could only be overcome by the miraculous help of God, which they had as long as they were faithful. The Israelites obeyed God and God fought for them. But they didn't keep obeying and we don't either. The Israelites lived under the blessings for obedience, curses for disobedience covenant. We don't have to live under that anymore today because Jesus was obedient for us in our place. He took the punishment of the curse for our disobedience in our place. The Israelites needed a savior. They needed Jesus, just like we do. It's his armor that we stand in to fight. 
And how do we as Christians today do war? We stand through trial and temptation in the power of the Holy Spirit, being faithful to God, standing in the truth of his word. Amen to that. And that's where we need to end today. Have a blessed day.